Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast. We have on Erin Marine Coster, who is a stage manager, another one that I actually don't know, somebody that I just see all over Facebook all the time, all over Actors' Equity, and so I wanted to bring her on. The reason we're doing so many stage managers right now, actually, we, do, we usually do a lot of stage managers, but yeah. the reason we're focusing <laughs> on stage managers right now is because it's year of the stage manager, and so we are thinking of for our 100th episode... I'm pretty excited about it, is to do a big a big stage manager shout out and uh, connect with Year of the Stage Manager. So that's why we're focusing on stage managers right now. And obviously, they're my favorite people. So we brought Erin on. Um, she is, there's so many things I want to talk to her about, but she is on the Actors' Equity uh, Governance Council. She's a huge part of Year of the Stage Manager. It's going to be awesome to talk to her about kids because there's so few of us, I feel, that actually do have kids in stage manage. So I'm excited about this whole episode. Plus, I don't know her, so it'd be more exciting to get to know her. So Erin, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yay. To get started, how did you get started in theater and how did you get started in stage management or what led you to where you are now? So my parents did theater in college. Um, They met doing theater. My understanding is that my mom maybe cast my dad in a show or directed something that he was in. I can't remember exactly, but they did theater together in college. Um, Neither of them went into it professionally. They thought about it, but, you know, for all of the usual reasons, they went and did other things. Um, But I grew up with just an understanding of the theater world and what it was. and, And it just, frankly, the stories of them doing theater in college sounded like a whole lot of fun. So... I had this sort of strange understanding from an early time that I would somehow go into theater, but I didn't want to act. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to do any of the jobs that I was already aware of about theater, you know, the typical things that people think of. So I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And uh, when I went to college, I thought, well, maybe I'll be a set designer because I don't know why I thought that, frankly. I am not a great drawer. And at that time, it was pre, it was just as people were starting to move into CAD, but mm-hmm. it was really not catching on yet. It was still a lot of drawing. Um, I don't know why I thought I was going to be a set designer. I think I knew what it was. And so that seemed like a place to start. So, <laughs> to foot in the door. It's good. Yeah. Why not? Right. Um, sorry, set designers. I know what you do now, and I think you're really important. Um, <laughs> So, but I, I, I had a little bit of a hiccup going to college and I didn't wind up in any of the schools that I wanted to go to. So I ended up at the University of Cincinnati, but not in their theater conservatory at all. And I tried to beg my way into any kind of scenic design class. And, you know, their conservatory is just absolutely impenetrable from the outside. So <laughs> I got my master's degree at the conservatory, so I totally understand. So you you're, like in this know. Little, you're in this little bubble over there. Right. So um, so needless to say, I couldn't even take a class in, uh, in scenic design. And 
for for an, any number of reasons, including that I lasted exactly one quarter at the University of Cincinnati, and then <laughs> I moved back to the town I grew up in and uh, went back to college the following year at a small liberal arts school in Ohio called the College of Worcester, which was an amazing move because their theater department was like you know anywhere from I feel like five to ten majors at the time that I was there. So you were in it. You could do it. You could mm-hmm. do everything. I was. Um, a, I worked in the scene shop. I became a scene shop supervisor at the end of my time there. I stage managed everything. Um, but don't let me get ahead of myself. So I did. I ran <laughs> crew for my very first show there. It was the first show I ever worked on. Um, it was a uh, the musical High Society. I'll withhold my opinions about the musical High Society. <laughs> I don't know um, about that one. Oh, it's uh, it's the Philadelphia story, except oh. the movie version. And, okay. you know, the Philadelphia story, the movie is amazing, right? Catherine Hepburn is unbelievable. Um, the High Society movie is horrible. Um, <laughs> it has Bing Crosby opposite Grace Kelly. And, like, two people could not have less chemistry on screen if you tried. So, so sad. Anyway. those two are really good, but yeah. Yeah, but not together. There was no, like you were in no, there was no chance that like, first of all, Grace Kelly in a musical. Second of all, Grace Kelly, like in love with being, cro- it was just not a thing. Anyway, um, <laughs> I digress. So I, I ran crew for High Society. And then uh, the second show that year was All in the Timing. And uh, All in the Timing was being stage managed by somebody who left the college in the middle of it. It was like, if I recall correctly, we rehearsed part of it um, during one semester and then part of it during another. And this person did not come back. So, you know, I was an eager beaver and somebody asked me if I wanted to stage manage all in the timing. And I was like, I don't know what that means. Great. Yep, I do. That's exactly what I did. (laughs) So I did it. And I did it with a a guy named Chris Maxwell, who is still a dear, dear, beloved friend of mine and a stage manager. Um, Still, we both, we started that show together. It was the first show we ever stage managed. We totally made it up as we went along. Our lightboard operator taught us how to do most things because he had like been doing theater. Um, (laughs) He taught me how to call a show. And then I stage managed every single thing else after that. I made it all up as I went along and I loved it so much. It was like obviously the place that I belonged with my, you know, skill set. So um, that was how I got into it. And then off I was, off I ran. I went to Columbia for my master's immediately out of college, uh, moved here and have been here since 2004. Where's here? Sorry? New York? Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm in California, so I never remember where people are located. Totally. I I moved here to go to Columbia and I stayed here. And so I've been in New York City since uh, 2004. I love that the way you talk about liberal arts schools, because Stacey and I both did the same thing. It was a small liberal arts school. I think I had five in my graduating class. Stacey might have had like a little bit less, you know, Uh, and and I was the only stage manager my year. The year after me, I think maybe one other person who is also still stage managing was there but like you said you do everything you know like I worked in the costume shop I know how to work in the scene shop I you know ran the light board when I needed to or you know whatever um so it's, it's to me one of the best experiences because you're not just like pigeonholed into something and you get to get the whole thing so it's really it's really awesome what how did you get going in New York? Did you do a lot of like the off-Broadway stuff or, you know, those small little shows where you 
get $200 for like six weeks of work? How did you kind of get your foot in the door there? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I was doing grad school projects in grad school and sort of via that met people that I could Mm, work with outside of grad school. Uh, That being said, I mean, the amount of debt that I went into for grad school, I desperately wish that I had known um, that I could have gotten to a similar place with just a few, it probably would have taken me a year or two longer, but just coming here and learning and networking and, you know, mm-hmm. reaching out to people, um, it's just, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty. but, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I stage managed the shows in grad school and then I met, um, a director doing a playwright thesis who loved me and hired me to do a show with him in a smaller off-Broadway company. We call them LOA NYC is the name of the contract. Um, so it's not a full off-Broadway contract, but a smaller company. And I did my first equity show with them and got my card in very early 2007, like February or something. And, uh, and that was because of a connection that I had made at Columbia. And it was all kind of like that at the beginning, you know, people that I met via people at Columbia and I started doing work. I did, you know, I did some showcases, which is, I think, what you're mm-hmm. referring to when you say $200 hours. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, sort of the the not so well kept secret of the New York theater world is that there are a lot of those out there that are not you know, that they're technically employing people, but they're not paying minimum wage. They're not, you know, putting people onto the proper employment Mm -hmm. documents and things. Um, But here we are. Uh, I think it it happens less than it did when, especially when I was starting 2006, like, I mean, it was super common for people to be like, here's a hundred dollars to do three months worth of work. And I I hope it's less common. I hope that people are starting to pay better than that. I hope Um, like I started here in 2008 and I feel like I saw so many of those. And I don't know if it's just because I'm further along in my career that I don't see them very often, but yeah, I don't see them as often as I did in 2008, which is encouraging. Yes, I agree. You're like, that doesn't even pay for subway for a month. Right. And I, I, you know, I'm part of a, I'm a member of a theater company of folks that um, they first met the, the, the origins of it were them meeting at the University of Puerto Rico, and then several of them coming to Columbia University for grad school, where they met more of us, and we all joined together and created this theater company, and we've picked people up along the way. And that's a smaller theater company, you know, we, um, when we do shows, we work very much together. Sometimes we bring people and from the outside, but it's much, it's more of an experimental um, artistic sort of outlet. And they still use the showcase code from time to time, but they pay an amount of money that you could actually like, you know, for some of them, it means taking some time off of a day job or um, supplementing, you know, while they're in grad school or whatever. For me, like not booking myself on some freelance gigs for a few weeks. So they do, they use the showcase code, but paid in a way that you can make it work for yourself. Right. That you can take the subway and eat and still be okay. Yeah. What's the name of that company? Kaborka Theater. I have no idea how to spell that. (laughs) C-A-B-O-R-C-A. I believe it comes from a Bologna novel. Huh. That sounds cool. It's great. It's my favorite place to be. Those are my, that's my artist family. We do weird, amazing theater together. <laughs> that's the best I, I call those my 
passion projects where, you know, they don't pay super well and they're maybe not high profile, but like those are the ones where you feel so artistically challenged, but also satisfied in the end, you know, like you you actually created something and we're a part of a collaborative process and they're just so much fun to work on. Exactly. So uh, I want to go into two things at once. Um, okay. I'm going to go into the first one and then I'll skip over to the second one. Um, so, <laughs> so logical in your reasoning there. Well, the second one makes more sense in the like flow of the conversation, but I know if I get into that one, we're never going to go back to the other one. So <laughs> my question is, you have two children. When did you have these children? And what, <laughs> I guess my real question is, were you nervous in the beginning before you had children? Like, was there this thought process of how am I going to raise a child and manage being a stage manager at the same time? Or was it like, no, I've always wanted children. I'm just going to make this happen. Like, how how did you go about this? It seems so technical, but I'm sure for stage managers, it is a very technical thing. <laughs> Most things are, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I did not always want to have children. I had to be convinced to have my first child. Um and I'm glad I was. And then uh, subsequently convinced my husband to have our second child so that our first child will not be alone. I'm an only <laughs> child. Um, and I felt pretty strongly that we should have two, at least two. Uh, and we definitely are only having two, let me tell you. But I think, <laughs> honestly, I think like I was a little naive about it in a way that helped me. Like I didn't realize how, how it was going to change things. I don't remember, you know, kind of sitting and thinking and realizing exactly what this was going to mean for me. I do think that I thought, you know, I'm going to have to go do a day job for a while. Like, there's obviously no way that I'm going to keep doing theater. My husband, here's another fun fact. My husband went back to uh, get his master's degree. The It wound up being the same week that my son was born because it was supposed to be <laughs> a month before my son was born. And then my son came early. So... My husband went back to school. My son was born literally all at the same time. And I had been doing a temp job that was poised to hire me full time. Um, and they wound up not hiring me full time because I had the baby. And if they, there's, I guess wow. they were concerned that if they hired me, they were going to immediately have to put me on maternity, maternity. leave. And it was yeah. a whole thing. So that was a giant, scary bummer. And we definitely... Um, we're in sort of financial free fall for a little while there. But um, ultimately, I did do a lot of temp work for a little while, probably about a year and a half. Um, I mean, to be quite honest, we lived off my husband's student loans for a little while at the very beginning, which I do not recommend. But it was that, just that moment, you know, I, I thought mm -hmm. that I had a job in place that was going to give me maternity leave for at least eight weeks. And then it didn't happen. And Mm -hmm. um, you deal with what you have so. you deal with what you have so yeah so I um, my son was born and I wound up being home with him for actually quite a while and then I was able to get a, a three days a week temp job that I did for I don't remember how long a year or so um, and I start then I started making my way back into um, corporate events which I had sort of stuck my toe into originally um, in my career, though I was mainly an off-Broadway stage manager from the time that I graduated from grad school until my son was born. I worked off-Broadway for the most part. Um, 
But I did some corporate things. And once my son was born, I was like, oh, corporate is obviously the way to go because it pays way better than off-Broadway does, especially mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're shorter and- events, right? Like it's not a six-week contract or whatever. Usually not. So, you know, they exist sometimes, especially if you go the sort of production coordinator, production manager mm-hmm. route in events, you could do longer stints. I, I prefer to stage manage than either of those things. So um, so I, I, I started just growing my corporate resume as I could. And um, it took a long time to sort of transition out of the having a corporate day job thing into being able to do events um, with some regularity, but I was finally able to kind of stop temp work. Uh, so I, I, the timeline is escaping me, but some number of years. <laughs> <again>. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and, and mainly do corporate stuff. Um, and I subbed once or twice off Broadway in that period after my son was born and then um, my daughter was born. She's going to turn two in short enough of a time that I probably should have bought her some kind of birthday present by now. <laughs> like um, later today, <laughs> right? So she's she uh, she came along while I was doing corporate, and at that point, like after having lived through everything with my son, this utter upheaval, I was like, "What? Like this is going to be cake? I don't." <laughs> I can stop doing corporate for a while. It's easy enough to tell people that I'm booked or not available. That happens all the time in corporate world, you know, Yeah. and, and then just start picking it up again. So the unfortunate thing for me is that probably not quite a year ago, I was having a conversation with Amanda Spooner, who uh, was like, I, and and just lamenting that I really missed theater and I got these little blips of it with my own theater company, but I missed, you know, being able to be in a show at a show, calling a show. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I really love corporate the most, actually, I like the cacophony of calling a show that you've literally never seen or rehearsed. I think that's fun. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I missed theater and she was like, well, why don't you sub? And I was like, I don't know. I subbed a couple times, but off Broadway, it's kind of hard to sub. And I never did Broadway. That's just not the way my career went for various reasons um, that we can talk about if you want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but she really like encouraged me and was like, no, I think this is the right thing for you. And she was exactly right. I started reaching out about subbing and just by utter happenstance, um, the play that goes wrong running long time, long term at new world stages was looking for someone and I was able to sign on with them last summer. So I started doing that regularly and they would have me in at least once a month, you know, to cover something or another. And I would do that. And then with all my corporate stuff, I really like, that's where, that's when I kind of landed in the momentum of my career. And I was like, this is perfect for me. I get to do the theater that I love. I get to do the equity theater that I care about so passionately but I'm not on a long runner, which is not long running shows are never going to be my bag because I like the shock and surprise of doing something for the mm-hmm. first time. Um, so, which is why corporate works for me so well. So I'm, I'm, I was really happy how everything was going until this shutdown occurred. Yeah, like, you know, story. when we were it's, working, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, exactly. It's fantastic. Now it's kind of challenging. So if you did, so corporate is not actors equity, right? They, it's not usually under a, AEA contract? It is. There are mechanisms to put it under contract. 
Um, especially if it's 1099 work, there's a way for you to put yourself kind of under, I mean, put yourself asterisk under contract um, by filtering it through the memorandum of understanding. There's mm -hmm. also, there is a business of theater contract. It doesn't get used very often anymore um, because I think it was sort of originally conceived to be for like, you know, the some kind of large industrial where there would be like actors involved, you know, singing and dancing yeah. about a washer and dryer or whatever it was. Um, mm -hmm. It's really a shame that the people won't be able to see my little see, hand. See, see, that's, that's, that. that's why we do video um, when we do these. <laughs> obviously, I was obviously never, um, never hired to be a dancer in one of those moments. But anyway, um, once it turned into what it is now, I mean, I've done, I haven't done any of these really that have actors involved, certainly actors who are panelists or something, but not actors acting to, you know, sell a product or whatever the thing used to be um, used for. So I think it gets used occasionally. I don't really think that the reason that it was conceived of exists anymore. And so mm -hmm. if, if it's going to be used widely again, it probably would have to be reimagined to some extent, because at this point, it's like, you're calling a show that is, you know, panel discussions or some kind yeah. of, um, I mean, for me, it's lots of galas and uh, fundraisers and award ceremonies and that sort of thing. There's sometimes there are performances in with that, but it's you know, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, so what, like when East West players would do their gala, we'd bring in a stage manager who was basically outside of the stage manager world, but a friend of East West players, and she'd come in one time a year. We loaded in. We sat down and kind of did a Q to Q and then she called it live and then we'd be like, bye, see you next year because mm -hmm. she liked doing that. Yeah, that's me in a lot of these situations. It's like come in maybe the day before and rehearse something, but usually not. Usually just show up that morning, get the lay of the land, you know, talk everything through with the technicians so that they know what to expect. You probably do some kind of dry tech and then the talking heads show up and maybe rehearse their speeches or not. And then you do a show that you make up while it goes on. Yep. My good friend keeps trying to get me to do that with him. He's invited me to do a, a couple shows and they're always right when I have a contract. And mm -hmm. I was like, you need to plan further in advance. And he was like, a lot of these I get like a couple of weeks in advance. He's like, I can't plan these. But the way he describes them are pretty awesome. And sometimes I get nervous because I'm so used to like the rehearsal process. I was like, I don't know. He was like, no, I've watched you call shows with no rehearsal process. And I'm like, yeah, we'll see. But it just sounds so exciting. Like you said, it's the not knowing what's happening and just being able to like think on your feet and, and go for it, which is so exhilarating. I would think. It definitely is that it's definitely where like what I love about theater, which is the tech process in mm -hmm. a very, you know, small period of time just put the show up and then you're done you know and, <laughs> and then you move on you call it and then you walk away I mean that's literally how it works you know you go in you learn it you call it and then the party goes on probably around you and you leave you're like cool bye guys everybody <laughs> everybody did their pieces everybody did their performances everything went well you know we played the videos or whatever the media content was going to be and off we go yeah See, that's and now how, you guys drinking. Yeah, now mm -hmm. I work on red carpet events and all, and I spend my time getting the set ready and loading it in, and then we have to be done by 4.30 because the press is showing up, and then I go take a nap and eat dinner and whatnot, and they do red carpet and party and whatnot, and I come back in a couple hours and strike it all. Exactly. <laughs> yep. 
That's so interesting. So then what made you join Actors' Equity? Why? Because you've been in, you've been part of the governance for 10 years now, and you're currently running for the Eastern stage management position. So what, I guess my question is, I know you're equity and you did these off-Broadway shows, but you've not really done a lot of equity contracts in the last couple years. So what made you stay on the council and is why is it so important to you? It's a good question. So I joined the union in 2007 because I was going to be working off-Broadway. I knew I was going to be working off-Broadway. And off-Broadway is um, usually everybody is on union contract um, mm-hmm. on the actors of the actors and stage manager side. And uh, so I joined the union. And then in 2010, I decided to start joining committees because Um, I really wanted to know why you couldn't get health weeks instead of silly, sad stipend for the showcase code. That was my, like, Hmm. I think a lot of people wonder that, but I, that was my, like, that was my inciting incident for starting to join committees. So I started to join committees and then more committees and then more committees. Um, and I was part of the negotiating team for the off-Broadway contract in 2012 um, and just did some other things, you know, um, meetings with the Dramatist Guild and, and got more and more involved in the union. And in 2012, I ran for council on my own. Um, but that was a different era where there was uh, the way that elections were run was very different. Um, there was this thing called a nominating committee. That's not really a rabbit hole we should go down unless you have several hours to discuss it. Um, but it was a- <laughs> It was a. It was hard to be elected to council if you didn't know a lot of current councilors. At that time, mm. that's no longer true, thankfully. Um, so I ran. I lost for lots of reasons. One of them is I did not have. Uh, I did not get to turn in a statement because, um, unfortunately, my husband uh, cut his hand and wound up in the hospital having reconstructive surgery on a tendon during that week. And I lost track of time and I didn't get my statement in. So I lost pretty spectacularly. The hand being reconstructed is probably a little more important. So, you know, he appreciated you being That makes it sound more dramatic than it was. It was a tendon that was being put back together, but, but yes, it was certainly more important. Um, so I lost that election and then my son was born in 2013 so I stayed on committees and stuff, but I was, I would say, probably less involved for a little while. Um, and then in 2016, the um, off-Broadway negotiations happened. And this is where Fair Wage comes into the picture, because uh, for the first time, the union worked with sort of grassroots with its membership to organize mm-hmm. around the contract negotiation. And I was, I got involved as a stage manager. Um, There weren't so many stage managers involved with it. Um, I got involved because I always was deeply saddened that I had to stop doing theater because I had a child. I couldn't afford to work off Broadway because the cost of a babysitter is more than most off Broadway salaries were at that time. Yeah. So, and especially with my husband in school. So that was where the passion came from. I don't. I wanted for people who are coming behind me not to have to stop doing what they are doing because they decided to have a family, or because they're caregivers of any variety, because their parents, you know, need to be taken care of or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
so it became very important to me to try and make things better for people whose careers are just beginning. And I was very, very involved in the grassroots movement of that negotiation, um, which really became a template for the union in terms of reaching out to its membership and listening to what their needs are in their area and really um, pushing to advocate for what the local membership really wants. Well, in New York City off-Broadway at that time, the answer was money because you can't live in New York City and make $555 a week. Yeah. It's not a thing. So um, the outcome of that negotiation was incredible and that momentum just kept going. So I ran for council right after that. You know, that happened at the end of 2016. I ran for council in 2017. Um, I won. I... And since then, I've just, I'm involved in, I don't even know how many committees, so many committees. Um, (laughs) I chair, I chair a committee, I chair working groups. I am literally obsessed with policy and execution on a union level. I'm also a somewhat of a labor nerd. You know, I did a show in 2007 with Howard Zinn, who, um, was deeply involved in the new, new labor movement. And uh, it changed my life. And I really believe in the labor movement as the mechanism to sort of rise, uh, buoy the working class again in this country so that we get to a place where workers can pay their bills um, across industries. Not helping right now, but... (laughs) No. Nobody can. But yeah, in general, it's so ridiculous on how many people like... I can barely afford a one bedroom, one bathroom apartment and I work full time and I've been working full time for years and people are like, hey, I'm going to buy a house in the Midwest. And I was like, I live in California. It's just not possible. (laughs) Right, exactly. So that and that's, you know, that's a problem across industries. It's not Mm -hmm. just our industry. So I'm also very interested in how we can participate in that conversation and um help give that conversation momentum and and uh, support our you know union siblings nationwide as we all work together. Um, but in terms of equity, I mean, equity governance, it's so nerdy, but equity governance is my favorite thing that I do. I love stage managing so much, but I love making up policy and trying to make it happen and trying to make people's lives better even more. I love like getting that one more percentage into somebody's pocket or, you know, being able to try to negotiate for a specific rule change for a specific group of people in Florida who are really having issues with the way one of our contracts works for, is not working for them. Um, for example, it like that drives me. I just the the tan, tangible quality of making people's lives better right now is something that feels so right in the face, especially of the current administration, which is so anti-labor. Um, and that, I'm sure that's part of where the passion comes from. But, you know, I, I started this in 2010. So the passion has always been there for sure. Um, it's and Workers are very important to me. Artists are very important to me. Um, I think that stage managers and actors deserve to be able to pay their bills just as much as everybody else who works in a theater company does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's where, that's where that camp comes from. That's so wonderful to hear you talk about that. It's 
two questions from that. How do you join committees? Is do you just go to the Actors Equity website and there's a list of them, or how do you how do you find them? Yes, there. In if you go inside the member portal, there's a governance section, and then you. I believe the process is still the same. You email the governance staff. There's some you know governance email address. You email them and say, I'd like to join this committee. Your name comes through to the chair of the committee and perhaps some information about you, like where you are, um, if you've worked as a stage manager, actor, or both, um, and you know that kind of information that the union would have on you, um, the chair can ask for. And then the chair can admit you as an observer. The sort of... Um, the practice has been you people are admitted for three observership, you know, three meetings where they're an observer and then can be considered for membership. But it's really the chair's discretion. The chair lets you in, the chair, you know, turns you into a member, allows you to participate in the conversation. All of those rules really are uh, at the chair's discretion. That's interesting. I've, I've never thought of yeah, observing a, a committee meeting, but that totally makes sense to see like if this is really where you belong or if this really makes sense to you. Exactly. And if it's something you're interested in, you know, we have contract committees and then also non-contractual committees. So are you more passionate about something like parents committee or young workers or <laughs> oh, that is specifically focusing on a group that they are supporting or, you know, membership education, which is about just uh, ways that we can, um, help all of our members understand their union better and how to use the union and how to, you know, help the union help them and all of that. Um, or are you more interested in actually like getting into the nitty gritty of the contracts, in which case you can join contract committees for contracts that you've worked. You know, there's ones for LORT, there's one, uh, there's a stock committee that covers course cost, uh, WCLO, MSUA, some others. Um, and, you know, there's an off-Broadway committee, there's a CAT committee, there's a LA-99 committee. For, so basically all the contracts have some committee that oversees them. And if you're more interested in the sort of policy negotiation side, then that's where you would get involved. That makes me want to join a committee, even though I only take like one equity contract every two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Agmon, they're sister companies, aren't they? That's true. Yeah, I don't know if they really work together as far as contracts and stuff, but it is something no, that I want to. They are sister unions, but they don't work together in terms of. Con I mean, they don't. They don't claim jurisdiction over each other's work, and so they work yeah. in that way, as in that they are sister unions. But they, to my knowledge, there's no such thing as a job that's covered by both. Yeah, yeah. So the fair wage on council. Why is this? What is my question? First this is all, a group is, of you guys that believe in this and you're kind of running in support of each other. Is that correct? As opposed to just like a single member. How did that come apart, come about? It came about um, out of a group of people who met and well, let me back up. It came out of a group of people who worked together um, in that grassroots side of the off-Broadway campaign. And I started to say that we met there, but many of us knew each other for years before that. Mm -hmm. um, we just hadn't maybe worked together so closely. And we were so excited coming out of that negotiation um, and the momentum that it caused 
for and and the waves that it made in terms of the way that we can do this. You know, everybody inside the union is so excited that there's a new way to do this. Um, this contract negotiation thing. And, uh, and so a bunch of us just got together and we're like, let's run for council. And perhaps, <laughs> perhaps out of a bit of naivete, not about how the governance worked, because many of us had been on negotiating teams or served on committees before. Um, but maybe out of a bit of naivete about, about, uh, no, I'm not going to say that. Never mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, we totally did what we were doing the whole time. <laughs> n- well, no, uh, it, I don't mean it because of that. I just think I'm going down a pathway that would lead us off topic. So um, <laughs> anyway, in so that, in 2017, a group of us that had gotten really excited by the work that we were doing um, with the union um, on those negotiations and ran for council together. And uh, Again, in 2018 as well, as the union was moving to um, biannual elections, 2017, 2018 were the last years that they were back to back like that. And now they happen every two years. Um, So the group has existed since then. And our major goal over the last few years has been to really get in contact with and listen to folks who are not in New York City. Um, We got some criticism early on for being New York centric, which made sense (laughs) because we were. Um, And it's true that solutions for contracts are going to be different based on where those contracts are located. And it's super important that what you're doing is igniting the local membership's fire to get what they need and want from their contracts. There's never going to be, you know, a situation where the exact thing that we did off Broadway work somewhere else. But for example, I was part of the NEAT, the process of the NEAT negotiations, which is New York, uh, New England area theater. It's in Boston. And um, I, because I am the chair of the developing theater committee, these are like all just words. I'm chair of developing theater committee. We oversee NEAT. Now I'm uh, chairing the proposal selections. Uh, I actually think I was a vice chair at that time. But anyway, I chaired the proposal selections for NEAT and got to hear from those members in Boston. Um, what they wanted from these contracts and also was part of the choosing of the people that were going to serve on that proposal selection. And I think at that time it was fairly novel that we did not pick New Yorkers to be on the NEAT proposal selection team um, very, very purposefully. (laughs) So we got to hear from the members in Boston what they wanted from their contracts. And uh, ultimately, they went and negotiated amazing, like 28% increase over the cycle of the contract and jobs and many other things. I mean, it was amazing. And it was very much like the same thing, igniting the fire in the members in Boston so that they could go and get what they needed. And, And with the union support and with support of the membership, you know, all together, for what they specifically were looking for. Um, I did not get to actually chair the negotiations for the NEAT contract because I had a baby that week. So (laughs) (laughs) I did that instead. But it's so awesome that they got to fight for what they believed in and that it wasn't some person, you know, 300 miles away that was saying, oh yeah, let's give Boston such and such, you know, because it doesn't, that doesn't make sense. So it's, but it's so weird that you said that was kind of like the first time that, it wasn't governed by New York people because in your head you're like, well, but this just makes sense this way. So why did we not do it I this mean, way I to begin with? 
I think it was governed by New York people. I mean, I was the chair, right? right. But, but it was very active in its solicitation of the opinions of the people who are actually there. And I, I think it, honestly, I believe that the New York centrism of our union is, um, is uh, what I'm trying to say is that it comes from a natural place, which is that more members live here than anywhere else in the country. And um, mm-hmm. the largest number of work weeks are concentrated in this city, you know, so there, there's sort of a natural reason that, New York centrism has happened to the union, but that doesn't make it okay. Mm -hmm. It just means that like I understand where it comes from. So now we have to work even harder to dismantle all of that for ourselves and remember that we are a national union who represents members across the country who are working under all different kinds of circumstances. And we need to be listening to them and guiding our negotiations based on what they need for themselves in the area that they are. And that's really, that is so much what the fair wage movement has been about. It's like based in utter blue sky dreaming, you know, let's sit down and just have a conversation about what your contract would look like if it were perfect. Forget that you have to negotiate your contract. Forget that you know your employers will never do this, that, or the other. Forget that, you know, so-and-so can't afford this and that. But just tell us what the perfect thing would be so that we can start to understand what your goals are for where you are. And, you know, will we get to the perfect thing? No, because it's negotiations and everything is always eroded naturally by negotiations on both sides. But it's so important to understand, you know, where people's passions are about what they are, what they're trying to fix and why and where the concerns come from. And so that blue sky dreaming is really at the core of the fair wage movement. And I mean, I talk to new equity members, maybe not every day, but like, at least every week, I talk to at least one member that I have never met in my life. And I hear some story about, you know, I met, I I get put in touch with people. I met a stage manager who's in Idaho. She's one of the only stage managers in Idaho who is making her living as a stage manager. Um, And I've talked to people who are working at Walt Disney recently about that contract. Um, It's just, it's so important to me to understand what people's experiences are all over the country. You know, we have, we have so many contracts at equity that contemplate so many different situations um, that it it would be impossible to like truly digest them all. And I think it's even more important to understand what they look like through the member's eyes than it is to just read them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have you noticed it becoming easier with all of the social media these days? Yes, I know. I mean, you've been on council for 10 years and it's social media has been big then. But even like when you first started, I would assume Facebook wasn't really that huge back then and Instagram didn't exist and all these things. So do you think having these resources has helped you reach out to all of these different members or to see from their their viewpoint? Because now you can, besides the um, unofficial AEA Facebook group, which you you started or you you I did admin on. But now you can probably, there's probably like an LA one or a San Diego one or a Florida one that you can be a part of. And then you could actually see what they're talking about on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. And I have, um, so first of all, I just want to correct you and say, I've been serving on committees for 10 years. I've only been on council for three years. Um, But the social media has absolutely changed the game. Absolutely. A hundred percent of the time. And the first 
group that got created was the um, unofficial, what do they call it? Unofficial Equity Under 40, I believe, Facebook page that was started by um, our first vice president, Melissa Robinette, um, Sid Solomon, who is running with me, um, mm-hmm. and Cato Phelan, and a couple of other folks who, Jason Quinn, who have been on council for a long time. Um, a long time for being under 40, five years or so. So <laughs> um, there are these amazing people who have been on council forever, uh, like literally since before I was born, and they are the best mentors that you could ever ask for because they know exactly why everything is the way that it is and can tell you, you know, how they've, how they've navigated. How they've gotten to that point. Yeah, exactly. Um, But that, that Facebook group, the under 40 Facebook group really took off. And I think it has, you know, several thousand members now. And that, that sort of laid the groundwork. It was out of that group that the unofficial equity stage manager group got started. And it was literally just me noticing in the under 40 group that the stage managers, when a stage manager topic would come up, stage manager topic, quote unquote, would come up, the stage managers would sort of talk amongst themselves and the actors would kind of ignore the post, which is fine. (laughs) Um, I understand. But uh, I thought, wouldn't it be nice for us to have a space? And so I just kind of you know, without any real inclination of what exactly I was doing, I created a Facebook group in 2016, I believe it was, um, that that stage managers could join. And now it's close to, it's very close to 1500 folks. Um, it is for sure the happiest place on the internet. There is like <laughs> nary an argument to be had. I mean, people debate for sure, but it's so well behaved in there. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, truly the reason that I have never left Facebook. I've thought about leaving Facebook so many times for all of the political reasons that we have all thought about leaving Facebook so many times. But that group keeps me there because I love it so much. And I've learned so much talking to stage managers around the country all the time about how they do what they do. Um, And the under 40 group is like that as well, hearing from, you know, both stage managers and actors from around the country who are, you know, often starting their careers um, about what that process is like for them is equally amazing. So I I mean, 100% for sure, social media has had a huge impact on our ability to reach out to each other and hear and and, uh, listen to each other's stories and learn from each other. So to to kind of go on that with social media, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, it's the year of the stage manager. What can you tell us about that? Because that kind of also started on Facebook and as grassroots and it grew. And I don't even know how many members there's like over 5,000 members in the Facebook now or something. So almost 6,000 actually. That's amazing. It Um, is. How did that start? And were you kind of there in the beginning with it? Or did you just, because I know you're kind of like managing the sale of the shirts and all of that. And uh, <laughs> there's something else that you were doing that's just kind of amazing. But yes, how did that all start? And what can you tell us about Year of the Stage Manager? That started, um, it was born out of a conversation between uh, Amanda Spooner and Lindsay Jones, who's a sound designer uh, that you may or may not know. He's worked with many people. So a lot of people know him. Um they had a conversation and the result of that conversation was the year of the stage manager, the concept of an entire year that was dedicated to raise awareness about, you know, the fact that stage managers exist and should be celebrated to celebrate us, to acknowledge us um, in whatever ways we could to educate people about who we are and what we do and why we're cool and why, you know, we're interesting. (laughs) Why you're cool (laughs) and interesting. Those are the best ones. (laughs) 
So, um, and Amanda is a person that I talk to probably every single day of my life, at least one time about all things stage management. She's sort of my partner in all things stage management. Um, I'm the kind of brain who works best with a partner. So I have these like in each of my little silos of life, I have a partner and she is my partner <laughs> in all things stage management. Um, Sid Solomon is my partner in all things equity. And uh, I talk to her so regularly that she, I, I don't know if I was the first person she told, but definitely we talked about it shortly after she had this conversation with Lindsay and she was for sure the, the, um, like spearhead person. Yes. That, yes. She yeah. spearheaded the whole thing, um, laid out the template and the groundwork for how it was going to work. Um, and then I've just been sort of participating, picking up, you know, projects, <laughs> picking up projects that I can be a leader for, you know, like the centennial photograph was my, mm-hmm. and, um, Cause I was trying to, we were trying to figure out how do we celebrate this centennial moment? And the centennial moment is, um, a hundred years since actors equity explicitly named stage managers in their conversations, um, and sort of acknowledged them separately from actors because up until that point, well, you know, stage managers really came from actors, which is how we all got here into this union together. Um, and that this was the point at which they, they put the word stage manager into their understanding of us and what we do. So we wanted to do something big to celebrate that. And I don't remember how I came up with the concept of photos, but I was like, but what if we got photos of people all over the country on that day or near that day together, you know, all the stage managers together, because whoever looks at the stage managers, you know, we don't get our head shots in the playbill usually or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, what if we put faces to the stage managers for that day? And we did. And the Times Square one was huge. It had like, it was bigger than, I ever imagined because as much as stage managers are on top of everything, stage managers are not great at RSVPing is what I learned. <laughs> and I spent all the time with emails and I'm like, come on people. <laughs> I think I only had 30 or 40 RSVPs and then we had like over a hundred people. Um, yes. Which was awesome. So uh, we had a photographer, um, the amazing Jason Dow, and he took a picture of all of us in Times Square together. And so that was our version. But then there were photos from literally all over the country, which Everywhere. was amazing. Yeah. And I loved everything about it. There were pictures of, you know, stage management students at colleges all over the country and um, people, you know, doing shows together in a place where there aren't very many theaters. So there were only so many stage managers. And I, I just it was exactly what I had hoped for. So. I've done things like that. Um, I did start the t-shirt campaign, but that's just because I happen to know about this thing called bonfire from other things that I've done in my life, um, which allows you to sell shirts without ordering shirts first. And that's really the trick, right? Because you don't want to have 150 shirts in your house and then only 10 Mm -hmm. people buy them. Mm -hmm. So I set that up because I knew about it. And uh, we've used that money to, you know, pay for the photographer. Um, I'm imagining the website, you know, that sort of thing. Um, And that's where that money is going. I suppose if there's any leftover, we'll probably donate it to the Actors Fund or somebody. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about it yet, um, but that's that's I did this I did the t-shirts and and I've just you know I've been around creating events for it as I can because I love to celebrate stage managers so of course I'm going to have my fingers in that pie, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's such a fun thing. It's 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 kind of what you said about 
educating people on it. And that's always been a huge thing for me is not just educating people on what stage managers do, but also what uh, IATSE crews do and technicians and all these other people that are so underrepresented in the theater world in general. And so when you're the stage manager started, I was like, oh, this is perfect. We can actually show people what stage managers do or talk about it. And I was telling Stacy, one of my favorite things about Instagram before the shelter in place was all the stage managers that walked around and asked people like, what do you think a stage manager does? What do you think I do? And that was the thing that I looked forward to every day is because all of the, the reactions and all the answers were just my oh, favorite. Good. Like I think, you Jen Shanker that did that first. I think it was Jen Shanker that did that first and it was so genius. Like she like it, walked around yes. Times Square and was like, tell me what you think a stage manager does. Yes. And I was like, this is the smartest thing anyone's ever done. It's so good. She was literally like asking the, the barista at, at Starbucks and then like yep. the guy who makes the hats in Times Square. And then she asked like, oh, the so she wasn't playing even asking- Mickey Mouse or something. She wasn't even what? asking theater people. She was just asking random people. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> it was awesome. And then she would ask them what their favorite show was and like, you know, be like, yeah, there's a stage manager who called that show or whatever. It was so good. It was really good. <laughs> but even the ones in theaters, you know, where the stage manager is walking around pre-show, like asking the guy who runs a light board or just like walking into a, a performer's dressing room and be like, what do you think a stage manager does? Or what's the most important stage most important thing a stage manager has done for you. And so many of them are like, um, give us breaks, take care of us, send us emails. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, yeah. most of them are like, you make sure that we survive, that we eat on time. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, I love that too. And I, and I just liked watching everybody at work, like do what they did. I was really sad yeah. because I had, I did one while I was learning the call of the show at the play that goes uh, wrong. And then I had signed myself up in May to do one um, while I was doing the World Science Festival, which is one of my big corporate things that I do every single year. So I was going to do a like, this is what I'm like in the theater world versus like, here's what it looks like when you're in corporate land and like literally everything's coming at you at the last possible second and you still have to make a show. Um, But, you know, alas, they canceled that one very early because scientists... <laughs> a little preoccupied right now. Yeah. That's so awesome because I did the same thing. I have one for when I was supposed to be at uh San Diego Opera and we were doing two shows kind of overlapping. So I was I was gonna be like in tech performance for the main stage Barbara Seville, but in rehearsal for their second show, The Falling and the Rising. And it, you know, we would have like rehearsals in the morning and the performances in the evening. And then I signed up for one two months after that when I'm at Teatro Nuovo, which is a Bel Canto ish training program with orchestra and most of my time is spent with orchestra and like scheduling classes and and this whole thing because we all live on campus together and to me it's kind of like the two opposite things that I do because I don't really stage manage for that we do have a show but it's like 20 light cues you know but it's really managing the people and making sure that they're taken care of and that you know all the scheduling and stuff works together exactly what they said you did (laughs) (laughs) it's very much taking care of them but it you know, it's kind of like the two opposites, it's like stage managing opera, and then it's it's this part. And I was excited about showing the differences between the two. So yeah, now I'm trying to too. come up with ways. I want to keep the dates because I still enjoy watching them. So now I'm just trying to figure out if I'm going to talk about my day or, you know, still talk about what it is that I would have done because I've been with this company for years. And so I still might take you through, you know, what my days look like in the past when I did this at a company. But sure. Yeah, it is kind of sad, but I'm glad that they're kind of picking up again. There have been 
people on the Instagram for the last few days showing us There's their been lives. Great ones, yeah. There've been yeah. really great ones of people like going through past. I love um, Molly's that she did the other day where she was looking at like past, you know, paperwork. She had like a prop. Mm-hmm. She, told funny, she told funny stories about doing mm-hmm. it naked. Like I was like, yes, all of this content is perfect. <laughs> There's one, yeah. Recently, that was also mishaps that had happened or like crazy stories of like incidents that had happened I think that was her too she's so funny it was just amazing because you're like oh yeah I've been there and it's like okay not you know none of us are perfect like we all run into these incidences and it's kind of cool to hear about somebody else and you're like I feel much better about life right now (laughs) it's so wonderful yep this is awesome we're gonna keep having stage managers on because they're my favorite (laughs) people to talk to they're so fun. I, that's what I'm saying. I love stage managers. They're they're they always know too. I always think it's so interesting as we you know fan out and try and talk to more members and hear more, you know what their local concerns are. It's so interesting to talk to the stage managers because they really do have a more, you know, sort of thirty thousand foot view of what mm. what's going on. You know, I I certainly the actor perspective is invaluable, but. Stage managers will often bring up things because I think it has to do with the fact that they move from acting company to acting company. And so they get all of those perspectives along the way. You know, actors tend to talk to stage managers about what their concerns are about a contract. And so then stage managers have this sort of like bigger scope of what, you know, what the goals could be for this world that I'm in down here or over there or up here, wherever they are Mm -hmm. from where I am. Yeah, because as a stage manager, you're the one that's either hearing it because they're upset about something or they're telling you their problems or you're getting emails about something that they wish were better or whatnot. And so, and I think, you know, as much as we sometimes complain about it, we are really there to help take care of the the actors and we kind of know what it is that they want or, you know, how to help make their lives better, which would then make our lives better. So Right. And how the same concerns coming up over and over again. It's also the stage managers who are often in touch with the union so if somebody's mm-hmm. in touch with the union, it's often the stage managers. And so they have, you know, notes on interactions with the union and how that can be improved too. So, you know, stage managers, definitely, definitely my favorite people in the world. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I 100% agree with that. Well, I think we're getting, we're getting close to time, which is actually a great place to stop because it's um, how awesome stage managers are for you or the stage manager. Yes. <laughs> Our, our last question is, do you have any twin stories? I don't know if I prepped you on this one. So we just like hearing stories about twins because we find it fun. It need, so it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be. Or anything. We just yeah, just. <laughs> I didn't, I, I couldn't understand you, Stacey. Sorry. Oh, I said it doesn't have to be theater related. It's just entertaining to hear. We We didn't know many twins growing up hardly any at all and so it's just entertaining to hear other people's twin stories and be like oh yeah we do that and like leslie sears the other day we talked to her and her grandmother and grandmother or grandmother was a identical twin and they used to like play games on people so it was funny to hear other other people's stories well mine is that um before my children were born, both of them, like as I was pregnant with them, I was convinced up until the point I knew that it was not scientifically true that I would have twins because my father has a brother and sister pair who are fraternal twins. Mm -hmm. And uh, my grandfather had identical twin sisters. So they existed in those generations. And I have 
some giant number of cousins on that side of the family, like 20 maybe, and none of them had had twins. So I would get in my head and be like, it's going to be me. I'm going to be the one in this generation that has the twins. Because there's twins in that generation and there's twins in the generation before. So it's going to be me. But it wasn't me. So I don't maybe maybe they're skipping our generation. I don't know if anything, if there's any truth to the fact that like twins can be genetic in any way, but I I both times I was pregnant, I was absolutely convinced that I would have twins until I found out that it was in fact not true. <laughs> would you have been excited about it or kind of scared? Terrified, I think. <laughs> have, but really only to have like for the first part where you have two babies and because one baby and not sleeping is a lot. So two babies and not sleeping seems like a lot. But after that, I think they actually, it's actually good. Like I have a good girlfriend from high school who actually has triplets. And I think there are like, like certainly there are things that are harder, but after a point, like they entertain each other. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when I'm, I have to entertain my own children for the most part. I mean, they entertain each other a little bit now that my two-year-old is my almost two-year-old is almost two. But, um, Mostly it's like us interacting with the six-year-old, whereas she has these three six-year-olds. So like they play together without her a lot, I think. And that, so, you know, I think it balances out at some point for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Once you're done changing diapers, then it, it gets better from there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, see, I'm still the entertaining twin. Cinder tries to keep her entertained for years, make her join podcasts, put her on committees. Perfect. <laughs> You're the instigator. She is the instigator. That's so true. We were talking about that yesterday. Amazing. Pushing me, pushing me to do things. Thank you so much for joining us. This was oh, really awesome. This is so fun. Um, everybody, it's just talking about what we love and talking to, yeah, talking to other people who understand our situation is is one of the best things ever, especially during this time when you're like, I still get to kind of do what I love. I'm going to talk to other stage managers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Share stories. Thank you so much. Um, I'm kind of really excited about voting this year because I'm never on equity contracts. I'd never honestly pay attention to them. I vote on the Agma ones, but because I don't do equity contracts, I never feel like it's something that I can vote on. But now I've talked to so many people and, you know, paying attention so much more, especially right now, because I can. Mm -hmm. So. I'm excited about what's coming up. Yeah, I'm I'm glad. I think it has brought some awareness. Um, you know, we don't have great voter turnout, although we do have good voter turnout in union land, um, apparently, compared to other unions, we have good turnout, but it's not good turnout in terms of percentages, you know, for anybody mm-hmm. who's paying attention. So I hope that, you know, the fact that people need distraction right now will get folks involved, you know. It's been it's been interesting definitely to campaign at this time because you feel a little bit like how could I possibly be doing this in this moment in time? But actually it's in so many ways more important than it ever has been. You know, I was just yes. talking to um, our president, Kate Schindel about this because, you know, we, we are more active now than we ever have been because we have to contemplate what's happening to our industry on its way to shutdown and then eventually on its way to recovery. And mm-hmm. we are going to have to be involved in that in a major way and really like leading the, the industry on that, on how we all go back to work in a safe way. So in a lot of ways, this is actually like probably the most important election that we've had um, yeah. during a global pandemic. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we don't have to go through many more of these in our lifetime. But uh, It would be very nice if this was the only one for sure. I'm going to knock one. Be- 
Wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to releasing this and having so many other people listen to it. Yeah, be, I'm excited. So very excited to hear it. Awesome. Yay. Thanks so much, Erin. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.